Hey old school gamers, this is Bad Mike, otherwise known as Save, 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 here with the Save for Half podcast. Talk about old school games and the modern games inspired by them. Howdy do, everybody. It's the Crown Royal bag of the OSR, the Save for Half podcast. With me is... DM Liz, the D12 in our Crown Royal bag. The best die. DM Corbett, the D4, so don't step on him. I am spiky. (laughs) I am, of course, DM Mike, with 3D6 in order. And joining us for a special guest appearance is our D20 and D-Die himself, DM Jim. Hey, I brushed my teeth just so my voice would be minty fresh for you guys tonight. We appreciate the effort. And we can tell. Oh, absolutely. And this episode, we are talking about Avramir. Yay! By Mothshade Concepts. David Hill, right? Yes. David A. Hill. David A. Hill, sorry. And this is a multi-book supplement for... The world's most popular role-playing game, Zero Edition. And we will be looking into this and talking about this supplement, what we think, what we don't think, and how we thought it. But first... (laughs) What did we do at David this week? Who cares? What have we been doing in gaming this week? Jim. <laughs> oh, me? This uh, this weekend in gaming, I was sitting with an Excel spreadsheet. And if you knew how dyslexic and terrible I am with Excel uh, worksheets, you'd think that was funny. Trying to make sure all the uh, superpowers in my game are self-consistent. Self-consistency? Uh, and math. <laughs> and math, always. Sounds fun. like orc nonsense. My mother, my, my mother didn't tell me how much math was involved in RPG writing. Math make brain hurt. <laughs> well, I'm glad people like you do the math so that people like me don't have to. Hey, you at least make your own characters, Liz. Unlike certain people, Amanda. I still Amanda. hate math. All righty. Well, what have you been doing, Corbett? I did spend the afternoon uh, yesterday with the kids playing some hero clicks. So I don't know if that counts as role playing though, because it's really a battle game. I said gaming. 
Otherwise, shoveling this driveway is pretty much my main goal for the rest of this weekend. So did you play out in the snow using the snow drifts like a sand table for terrain? Ooh, I could have. No, yeah. it's just like a snow by the end of the day. Oh, my God. <laughs> you eh, see you can, Empire yeah. Strikes Back, and you're thinking, oh, that'll be fun out there. And then the Tauntaun shows up, and you got to cut it. <laughs> yep, got to. Yeah, actually, I got my friend Ben a uh, sleeping bag from, what was it? Think Geek. Think Geek, yeah, which was shaped like a Tauntaun. And you opened it up. And it had guts on the inside, draw a pattern on the printed. interior, printed. And the zipper was a lightsaber. <laughs> <laughs> so That's pretty funny. It, it yeah. was pretty awesome. What was even more awesome was we sent it to him and his little boy <laughs> immediately boy. stole it from him and claimed it as his own. <laughs> it's true. True story. So you missed out on a perfectly good white sand table. Liz and I just got back from the Victorious game. Yay. Yay. We were all playing or working on some form of hero-centric game. This weekend, yeah. Interesting. Which means we should probably have been covering a superhero game this time, but oh well. Nope, fantasy for us. <laughs> Later episode. Later yes. episode. All right. Well, then, unless there's any announcements, we will go to our podcast break and then head right into our top fives actually i have a question not an announcement can i have a question maybe answer a question? <laughs> <laughs> like every comic con panel ever uh, i don't really have a question it's more of a comment <laughs> no no no, no. i've just figured you guys uh you, i know you just made your announcements for uh north texas con and i, I know jim is hosting uh his mega heroes game which is coming out soon right Ish. It'll be a kickstarter Ish. <laughs> sooner than victorious did how about that <laughs> there's blood in the ink is all i'm saying yeah oh yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then and mike you have your victorious game set up which is a uh, spite your 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 frustration with players <laughs> well, i don't know about a spite more just succumbing to the inevitable of how con gamers are wait hang I'm on le- what's going on <laughs> <laughs> I'm letting them all run villains this year. And the adventure is a bunch of second and third tier super villains have been hired to kill James Moriarty, the Napoleon of crime. Oh, oh that's right. So you're going to let the players murder a hobo to their heart's content. Exactly. Yes. No more. What's your alignment? No more. You're kind of supposed to be a superhero. Nope. Nope. Do it. Turn it around. Make it work for you. That's know. right. I, I am a hero. Captain Stabby. <laughs> I bet we're going to touch on this later because Avramir, Avramir. Okay, I'm going to try and Avramir. 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 Yes. It's not just if me. You say it three times, you summon DM Mothshade. Oh, awesome. We could have him on the show then. That'd be cool. It's like it should be a, with a French accent in Avramir. Anyway, anyway, th- that, that idea of uh, is your setting murder hobo ish or not will come up again, I bet. Okay. So yeah, uh, no sneaky info on the adventure, but that's all I'm going to say. And it seems to be going over fairly well. So at least it as far as like interest, it's fun. No, well, yeah, I said to hell with it. So well, I find it funny that that Jim's doing heroes, Mike's doing villains. Maybe they should meet in the middle, like a Reese's peanut butter cup. That's all I'm saying. 
<laughs> and run neutrals? What? Oh, 90s heroes. Yeah. 90s superheroes. Well, hey, if someone signed up for Jim's game on Friday morning and then got into your game Friday afternoon, they could somehow sort of maybe segue in in a weird sort of way. Maybe. I mean, I'll, one time grenade and you're there. And how often do time wormholes open up in superhero games anyway, right? Am I right? Oh, right. sure. Hardly ever. <laughs> Hardly. Almost as many times as there are Hostess Twinkie ads. Or evil twins. <laughs> it's never twins, Mike. Never twins? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Two ads then. And then Avramir. Yay. Into a world without nearly enough quality gamer podcasts, they came. The Grognard Files, a podcast about role-playing games from back in the day. You know they're experts because they speak with British accents. Find them at armchairadventureblog.com, iTunes, or wherever fine podcasts are served. Are you ready for the next innovation in tabletop podcasts? Hi, my name is Zach. I'm the host of Tabletop Radio Hour, a podcast about anything tabletop. We use the best new discovery, the Dual Purpose Podcast, where one week we talk about a set of topics in our talk show. Another week we have an actual play podcast, where we play, most likely, 7th C 2nd Edition. We like to include everyone, so we feature a lot of guests, some of them being our friends. If you want to experience fun in innovation, check out Tabletop Radio Hour, available anywhere you can find podcasts. And here we are to talk... Avramir. I guess there won't be a mic in the mechanics, because, well, there's not really mechanics. The mechanics are OD&D, or Swords and Wizardry, or probably pretty much any retro clone of your favorite flavor, honestly. Dang um, it, there should always be a mic in the mechanics. <laughs> <laughs> I am not going to get on there and explain. Here's how you play d and <laughs> I'm not doing it. All right, Avramir. Five books, the general Avramir book, book zero, and then four supplements. To split the work up, Each, all four of us read the first book, and then each one of us took one of the four remaining supplements to cover. So the top fives will mix and match a little bit. But first impressions, and we'll start with Jim, since he's the guest here. Oh, <laughs> I forgot doing that was going to put me first in line every time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to try and stay tamped down in this episode so that I don't go all proselytizing. Better than, but, better than a here? Well, I, I was fortunate that uh, – it's funny you should say that because I'm fortunate, <laughs> fortunate enough that, uh, to be friends with David. And as these books have come out one by one, he's met me at game, various game hole cons and given me copies. So I, had, I have them all on print 
in nice, pristine little bags. I flipped through them and scanned them. I never really sat down and gave it the, the full read until we were doing this podcast. And I suddenly understand why I think I have a prejudice against gazetteers. I don't. What I have is a prejudice towards poorly executed gazetteers because Avermeer is the opposite of that. It's everything you would want in a gazetteer. It's, it's, it's deep, but it's top level. It doesn't get down into endless lists of NPC personalities you're going to meet. I mean, there are some, but not like a traditional gazetteer and i just like the whole approach better it's it's world building in a fantasy setting of a level of hargrave and gygax and arneson and uh wow i couldn't come up with a fourth one there's barker <laughs> help me out yeah yeah m.a barker the guy says in a forward that uh you know this is 30 years of my campaign and it's dripping off every paragraph so i'm i was blown away by this okay corbett I felt like it was a really well-constructed world just kind of thrown out there. It felt weird that it needed to be into five books, though. I didn't. I would say that's my only, like, kind of, huh, that's odd. But um, I did note this to, to Liz, and I thought it was funny. Coincidentally, every book is 88 pages. He did some kind of planning or yeah, really that, that's... coincidentally hit a number. <laughs> I don't believe in coincidence. <laughs> the power of 88. Yes. But yeah, it's a really well-written, pretty lengthy walkthrough of a world without being uh, wordy. Just constantly filling in with, and then there's more, and then there's more. But there is more. There is more, unless there's more. (laughs) Okay, Liz? I was just incredibly impressed with the whole shebang of Avermeer going off on what Jim and, you know, even Corbett have said in what they were talking about it. It's so well written. Everything just sort of weaves into each other in just almost a seamless, harmonious whole. I do like the multiple book way that he put it together, though, because that way, if there is a particular part of it that you don't necessarily want to use in your own campaigns, you can just ignore that particular book. Also, I think, you know, having it in the individual digest books, again, harkens back to the original Brown books. You know, you had the Greyhawk book, you had the Deities, Gods, Demigods and Heroes book, you had Blackmore and yeah, yeah. Eldritch Wizard. So for the nostalgic feel I like the way he set it up for that for that way too. I don't want to get too much into it right, because right, right, this, this is, is just stuff first wanna... impressions. Yeah, first impressions is this is awesome. You should buy this. <laughs> I think that was a spoiler. Yeah, well, <laughs> my first impressions, as I told Liz, the thing that most came into my mind was this ain't your daddy's D and D setting. No, um, it has its own feel to it its own flair, its own, it, it's, as he himself says, it's not just cookie cutter fantasy Europe. It's got a lot of different cultures mixed into the realms, the sub realms and the monsters and such. To me, I think that is, is a good and bad thing for me personally, but I'll get into it more, but it is certainly full of imagination. I'll definitely give it that. It's, I mean, I, well, I'll go, go into more details as we well what you mean is uh, 
of a scope far beyond here are my house rules and my campaign right. map. Right. It's, it's like things are this way and they work this way because of that. It's not uh, game mechanic centric, which is a, a approach I, I fall prey to. The Arboros, Arboros snake consumes its own tail and everything makes sense. Versimilitude. There's the word I was looking for. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, halflings aren't just renamed Bucca. There's a reason for it. There's a background. There's an evolution to how they got there. Not just all halflings in this game will be called Bucca, and that's it. You know, but otherwise they're exactly exactly the same same. as other halflings. You know. Yeah. So I, I I like that. The save for half top five in five. All right, so we'll start with our top fives, which, of course, we'll start with Jim now. (laughs) Is this your way of trying to convince him to come back to the show Uh more often? Because I don't think it's going to work. No, no, see, if he comes more often, he won't get chosen, see, at first. (laughs) Okay, fine. Liz, you go first. Ha 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 ha. Okay, for my top five, this one is going to be part of the first supplement, the Avramir Supplement Zero book. One of the things that I really liked about the concept behind the setting is that in Avramir, humans are the invaders. They are settlers. They weren't always there. They came over and they didn't make a good first impression There was a huge war. They lost, but in the end, they were allowed to remain. And so they've kind of got a peace with their neighboring races, but, you know, they're not the big boys in town. And I think that's just real. That's a really cool concept. It is not humanocentric. Right. Yeah. All righty. Corbett? Well, I'm going to lean a little bit on, I, I think we all kind of felt it. Uh, reading through it, but I think I'm going to lean a little bit heavy on the the Patrick Swayze of this because of, we all felt the Patrick Swayze-ness of the the books, right? I mean, wasn't just me. Uh, I think it was just you. I'm not sure what you mean by Patrick Swayze. Nobody puts Avermeer in a corner. What? <laughs> See, Avermeer Roadhouse. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm going to start off with the fun one because I want to do it first. But the Flutterpotamus. Ah. Flutterpotamus, of course, cute little piece of art and a fun little kind of homage to, um, well, presumably an homage to the uh, fairy dragon. But little butterfly hippopotamus. And there's actually a lot of clever monsters. I, I know Liz has one in her, on mine that she's going to come back with. But <laughs> it really kind of gave me that soft-spoken moment that that sort of um, Patrick Swayze from Ghost, you know, when he says ditto. And it's just like, yeah. I can, I I think you can all feel that. So I'm, uh, (sighs) ditto. Ditto. (laughs) Okay. Jim. Wow. You went Tim Cask fast in that little bit. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm, I'm a little rusty. So just help me out. Are we doing our top five of everything we read or just the setting right now? Um, everything we read i've got a top 20 um well besides the interesting parallels to the colonization of the americas like liz was talking about the you know the humans show up and and come crash the party and get what they get except in in avramir it 
it's as though the Native Americans had all the elemental forces of nature and some gods behind them. Um, I guess my job then would be to focus on the uh, spell casting. So I'm going to jump straight to the uh, arcana flow, the idea that the native magics are all powered by nature and these elemental forces, but humans arrive with their own invented power source for their magic called the arcana flow, which is metaphored out as an oceanic power source really imp- it impacts the whole world it makes magic human centric although the elves fighter elves and the equivalents can still use it and so forth but the uh, the idea that it's not just this oceanic arcane power source that all the spell castings derive from but it comes with all this bolt-on stuff that flows back into the uh, new mage classes like Flowcaster, where this arcana force is you're drawing on it. In the Eldridge Avramir book, he goes way deep into this whole new spell system that's, at least to my eyes and reading background, very new and fresh. The, the arcana flow is eddies, tides. You can sense it if, you, you, if you're if you a spell user, you have an arcane aura and you can sense it and do a little check to see if it's flow you know if it's high tide or low tide the second you need to throw that spell and even uh, manipulate it in some ways and that all just blew my mind i'm like this is really cool and and aspects of it are woven throughout the rest of the setting it's not just the arcana flow is not just for mages yeah i also liked that if you didn't want to get into that in your games you didn't have to it's something new and it brings a deeper level to it you know, that can enhance your game. But if you decide you don't want to use that, I mean, in the end, it's not going to hurt what you do. Exactly so. So new spells or old, like you, Magic Missile. Magic Missile still works like Magic Missile does in the original Little Brown books, but with the Arcana Flow uh, bolted on top, a mage can walk in a room and, and you know, sniff. And, hey, somebody just threw Magic Missile in here. That's pretty cool. I love the smell of Magic Missile's <laughs> morning. Smells like victory. Okay. My number five, I was really blown away by the magic items. It seems like in a lot of supplement books, when they provide new magic items, they're either plus 90 sort of death head exploding on a 19 or 20 badass sword, or they're plus one swords with gold hilt, you know, or something like that. You know, it's like, okay, you know, they're serviceable, but they don't really grab you. But the magic items, whether it's weapons or not, is just he's thought about it there's some yes there's a sword called the nethrus it is a mist blade now it affects quote-unquote ethereal creatures all right ethereal creature sword but it looks like it's shaped out of mist and you can actually breathe it in and hold it for a little while and then breathe it out and then use it as a weapon that is awesome to me it's pretty cool Frog horn. Oh, I loved the frog horn. Summons frogs. I think I have one of those. A booming croaks <laughs> summons 1d10 by 100 ordinary frogs plus 1d10 giant frogs come to serve you. Also creates a thick greenish fog. Oh, oh, in the Davon supplement, there is a frog mantle in the magic items. And if you had the frog horn and the frog mantle, I mean, it doesn't say that you could combine them and do even more things. But I think that would be a super cool idea that you could incorporate. That's it. I'm rewriting Temple of the Frog. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the imagination and the, the niftiness, I mean, there really are very few just, okay, you got a plus two axe. You know, no, these magic items really have, even the weapons and armors and stuff have special 
effects or histories to them that really make them interesting and really has legend lore come into its own or bards, depending on what E you're playing. <laughs> but anyway, that's five. That's part of that depth of thought that is throughout the setting that I really keyed in on. Death of thought? Depth Death. of Death. thought. Oh, okay. I thought it was a death? Huh? Okay. <laughs> death of thought is Pathfinder. Uh. <laughs> Ka-ching! You'll be here all week, folks. <laughs> Don't forget to tip your DM on the way out. Sorry. Liz, number four. Okay, number four. All right. In the supplement book I covered, which was supplement number one, uh, Davon, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that one correctly. I did not ask David beforehand about that one. But anyway, they go into some subclasses of the character classes that are initially covered in the, in the Supplement Zero book. And in Davon, there is a subclass of the thief called the Gutter Snipe. I think this is an awesome variant of the thief. It's a child of the streets and a scavenger who can find and make use of just about anything, whether it's, you know, just an old iron pipe they picked up in an alleyway or an overheard conversation somewhere. They can pick up useful info on the streets, and it's a really imaginative variant on the legend lore ability of the first edition AD&D Bard. And not necessarily limited to legendary items and things like that, but just they have a percentage chance, instead of the standard thief ability, to be able to read magic, know languages, maps, that kind of thing. This replaces that ability. So they have the percentage chance instead to know something useful about any particular thing as they go up in levels, whether it's because of overheard conversations or they found a scrap of a note somewhere that happens to have be dealing with what it is that you're trying to find out about. Their scavenging ability allows them to pick up information and just know things. So I think that's a pretty fair trade for the loss of the read magic, no languages ability of the standard thief. And it's a subclass that only humans are able to to have. And it makes sense for a metropolitan thief as opposed to... Yes. You know, you're growing up on the streets, you're using everything to hand just to survive and thrive. And this is allowing you to be able to just take anything that you've got and making the most of it. Okay. Corbett? Four. Don't bring up Patrick Swayze again. <laughs> well, good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> so the clerics, they I was going to mention, they have several offshoots of clerics and druids in the, the book I was going through. The deities and demigods where they covered, you know, religion and stuff. It, it sounds like everything is kind of subdivided out that way. Obviously, city situations that Liz was going through and magical situations that Jim's going through. The I really thought the uh, rela, uh, reliquarians, when I say reliquarians, they're relic worshippers. Mm-hmm. He added an interesting class or subclass to them where essentially it's an old religion. They use relics. They, they worship and pull power from relics or um, I guess you might call them artifacts too. It wasn't super cool. It was just a neat idea. It was a very clever, quick mechanical play much like any caster you can use spell points to cast your spells but you could also use hit points your hit points to cast your spells and although that's a little uh voodoo witch doctory i thought that was kind of cool it had a certain feel you might even take it to the level of swayziness that um 
you find in Roadhouse, and the cleric says, you know, I want you to be nice until it's time to not be nice. Yeah, Swayze time. Oh my god. <laughs> ah, it's gonna be one of those shows, isn't it? <laughs> my goodness. Ah, it's the Swayze it goes. <laughs> I see, you thought things might have changed since you were around here last, Jim. Oh, no. They have not. <laughs> I'm sure he was hoping. <laughs> That's why I agreed to be on. Oh, I'm just glad to be here to lower the bar for all future podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you're four. I go to a pecu- peculiarity of the two uh, mage classes. The, uh, the, the first one is the Flowcaster, which, as I said before, is just your standard magic user. Unless you bolt on, choose to bolt on the module for their Arcana Flow, then he gets to do some extra cool stuff. But the second subclass is called the Spell Fencer. And this is 2019, so this is f- my 40-year anniversary of playing D&D. And for 40 years, I've been among the throngs going, Gandalf used a sword. Why can't I use one? And the spell fencer is, is your class for that. You get to use something. Okay, put your pronunciation dyslexia on uh, a pure ban, P-I-U-R-B-A-N, which is a combination magic wand and rapier in combat. You can mm. charge it up with spells and you can put the pointy end in things. <laughs> you killed my father. Prepare to die. So, and, and you know, and, and, and just reading the class, suddenly, you know, you're seeing a magic user with like, the Three Musketeers hat and the swashbuckling cape. And that's not a look most magic users have, but it would be really cool to try one out. Swashbuckling spellcasting. That's a nice combo. I'm a legend to bard and you have killed my father. Prepare to die. <laughs> Aha! With a fire bug. Oh, yeah. Well, there's no question what spells I'm sticking in my uh, wand right In your wand. Yeah, I figured that wasn't even <laughs> up for debate. Uh, although Lightning Bolt, all you'd have to do is cross swords with your enemy and then Zark. That could be fun. Again, it's back to some of the just originality that's imbued in something where you don't think there's room for any more creativity because we've seen it all and played it all. I mean, okay, a magic user a sword. Well, you can do that in DCC just fine. Uh, wizards in DCC are allowed to use swords. Problem solved, right? But this is cool because that uh, pure ban does all... I bet pure ban is some fancy other language word for rapier that I just don't know. Like I, how I don't know the name of half the pole arms or, or can pronounce them. But having a wand rapier in combat would be badass. A wapier. Yeah, I don't think we want to call it wapier. That's, <laughs> That's not a good name. Oh, okay. All right. Well, my number four. This is, I covered the second of the two supplement books. Supplement one, what's, what Liz covered was, what was it called? Devon. Devon. That's it. And mine was Mavolg. And they're basically the two human realms, such as they are in the realm. So mine, they had a nice description of various areas and encounters. And I liked it because it reminded me of some of the old Judges Guild, like Wallerlands of the Magic Realm, Fantastic Reaches, that sort of thing. Only instead of giving you like the hex number, it just gave you the location and what's going on there and what you might run into and all. Which Thank I found you. Was- Blood, Bloodsaw is who I should have named along with Hargrave, Gygax, and Artisan. Thank you. Okay. And I thought that that was a really great way of paying homage to it without getting bogged down into the hex number, hex specific. You know, you're, you're just, okay, this is the area you're in. This is the stuff that can happen. And I thought that was really cool. Much more intuitive and flexible for the DM. So, Liz, three. 
Alrighty, my number three. So this is just a, a little cool aside that I thought was interesting. Because I mean, the whole thing that I've noticed throughout reading what I have is just little bits and pieces that are stuck in almost accidentally, but I don't think they really were in the middle of reading about certain things. And I, I tend to want to believe that there are just little Easter eggs stuck here and there that things that mean more than perhaps they're meant to mean. And in the Davon book, they're talking about the ministries, the various government of the human lands. And we have a list of the different ministries, the Ministry of Allocation, the Ministry of Artifice, the Ministry of Censure, and all of these listings, they're basically very cut and dried saying what the ministry does. Ministry of Allocation, Finances and Funds, Ministry of Censure, the Peacekeeping and Law Enforcement, etc., etc. And then at the end, you have the Ministry of Sanction, and that listing reads, ostensibly, the ministry that takes an interest in contracts and agreements. That is the only <laughs> listing that is not cut and dried out of all of that listing, all, you know, all of those, the very end. But this one, ostensibly, the ministry well, that takes an interest. There you is know? the espionage <laughs> use of the term sanction. Yes. And so... But it doesn't go into any more detail than that. And so I'm just going, okay, what are they really? And is it up to the individual DM to decide? Or do you find out in a later supplement book more about the Ministry of Sanction? But now I want to know about the Ministry of Sanction and what it really does. Well, and here's something maybe you can answer for me, Liz. Mm -hmm. In the book, David Hill mentions that alignments, well, he splits it from alignment and ethos. You know, alignment is law, neutral chaos. Oh, good. We're going to talk Ethos about that because it's like the 3.5 alignment system. Right. <laughs> and, and, but anyway, I got the impression with Mavolg, and you can tell me if it was about your realm. Mm -hmm. It sounds like your realm was pretty much the law realm. Mostly. Whereas Mavolg read more like neutral slash chaos, which doesn't necessarily mean evil, but chaos. He says what you just said explicitly in one of the books. Yeah, I think it was the book zero. Yeah, it's, it's the quote-unquote safe settlement of humanity, mm -hmm. but it's not really safe. safe. <laughs> it's safer. <laughs> so yeah, there are, with the, of the various counties, there are safe places where you're less likely to run into bad things. And then there are others where you are very likely to run into bad things, even though you're still within the realm of Davon. That's something I was going to probably go into in one of my top five, oh, but I'll sorry. talk about it here. Since Well, it kind of segues in, so I'll talk about it here instead. You know, you've still got those pockets of danger and wrongness that adventurers can stumble across, and I think the county that covers that is one called Isart or Isarte, the entire land there has been tainted by the mass graves of the fallen from the harrowing, the name of the great war that occurred after humans came to try to settle. There's just so many. The dead are restless there. Nothing grows correctly. A lot of bad things can happen in that county. It's um, a land where the shadows lie. Eh, yeah, you could say that. Then at the opposite end of the spectrum is the county 
of Nadre, where art, story, and song are lauded. You know, this would be, you know, Bard Central, any other place. And the San Francisco of Evermere. Yes, yes. (laughs) The best part about Nadre is that in the capital city, rival art gangs fight one another for influence and performance rights. (laughs) And the fights could be street brawls or they might be (laughs) dance-offs. Either one is entirely possible. So it's pretty Swayze is what you're saying. (laughs) Yes, yes. It is very Swayze. I was like, I got to say, when I first read about that, I immediately thought of that scene from the Tenacious D movie. (laughs) We're going to kick your ass with rock. (laughs) It's like the demon code prevents me from declining a rock off challenge. (laughs) Yeah, when they challenge the demon to a rock off, and the demon just stops and goes, "Damn it! (laughs) I've got to do this." uh, All right, fine. (laughs) (laughs) So, so yeah, I mean, it's it's the lawful quote unquote pay, but you know, anything can happen depending on where you are in Devon. So. Yeah, and I got that feeling about alignments it's as awesome. a whole. It's like alignments, which frankly is kind of how I play alignments is, you know, this is a general how you feel. Does that mean that you will mm-hmm. never, ever, ever do anything evil ever or good? No, but that has, tends to be how you tend. Okay, Corbett, three. Your Swayze number three, Corbett. My Swayze number three. Um, there are no orcs. There this you is go. just a straight up, there are no orcs, and you cannot have a half-human, which, honestly, I really kind of like. It makes it very high fantasy, kind of the old, the races are the races, and you deal with it on your own. There's no, like, mixing and matching, which sounds a little racist now that I said it out loud. <laughs> I think it's just the opposite, because with no ha- half-orcs and no half-elves, you get out of all that rapey character origin story stuff yeah that weird weird stuff but i thought it was i thought that was a part where moss shade really felt like uh you know swayze when he was in mash as this dying soldier was like i'm gonna go out my own way and moss shade you swayze it up i hate you (laughs) (laughs) all right jim over to you (sighs) i wish i'd seen more patrick swayze movies now frankly because i (laughs) with any any Don't encourage him. <laughs> I'm going to skip down to the uh, new monsters that appear in the Eldridge Avramir book because they're just – they're that way throughout the other books too. But there are just loads and loads of super creative new monsters to like. Not yeah. just a beholder with a different name or uh, phase cat. Wait a minute. I just did it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, even if you're not going to play the campaign world, I think just – the magic items and monsters alone are worth it. This is why I love all of this to begin with is because even though I would never personally run the setting because I create my own settings where and me, David and you guys and Corbett, I'm fogging out. But didn't you start around 7982? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You're, we're all from the age of do it yourself because there just wasn't that much published. But I'm reading through this book going, yeah, I'm having that. I'm nicking that. I'm going to use that. Um, and, the, and the new monsters, I'm just going to run through some really quick that are in the uh, Eldritch book. The Arcanathrope, which is where some poor magic user gets caught with an arcane spell that frequently turns him into the living incarnation of a spell as a sentient being. That just blew my mind. You just want to be a sentient fireball. Yeah. <laughs> Don't want to fight one of these, but I'd love to take take one for a test spin. The Dwomer, Dwomer ganger 
is a sentient well back up to their can of flow it's speculated that it's semi-sentient anyway so a Dweomer ganger is a little sentient chunk of the arcana flow that sneaks up on a magic user copies his appearance and steals all his spells and then walks around casting them <laughs> that's the goblin dimmer and mike you know how you and i squabble back and forth about a uh, recent season of uh everybody's favorite british time lord and you're like all i want is a little more spock well you know, you know my taste, how my taste run. I, I like a little genre mash and a little gonzo. And the goblin dimmer, are these goblins that have just somehow figured out how to create arcane dimension jumping spacesuits and they just show up and port in from one of the outer planes and port back <laughs> out. And like the leader goblin dimmer is the one that kind of points them, but it's still kind of random. They don't necessarily know where they're going. They're just showing up. They're goblin time lords. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a mouse in spellmental. Try saying that three times fast. <laughs> the product of uh, some since-deceased magic user because he invented the mouse and spellementals, and I guess they turned on him. But they like come in different fur colors and stuff, and they can all do different things, and, and they're just outrageous. So a little mouse shows up, and it has red dragon breath at full strength. That's want to jazz that, up your mouse guard game? Yeah, yeah. talk about <laughs> you know Bob Bloodsaw and Judges Guild games. Yeah. That's a Judges Guild kind of monster there. Oh, yeah, definitely. And just boatloads more of the same kind of just trippy monsters. Yeah, I mean, he's got them in the Davon book, too. There's the Tanglewood Squirrel. Again, rodents that can take things. They comprehend languages. They can't speak them, but they understand any spoken language. They possess thieving skills of a level equal to one quarter of the total number of squirrels present to a minimum of first level. So say you got 16 squirrels, each of them has skills equivalent to a fourth level thief. There you go. And they can use mirror image once a day. Ah! And then, then they like magic and they can often intuitively utilize items they come across. So you've got a whole bunch of squirrels with the ability to use magical items. <laughs> Hey, Mike, have you seen my fireball wand rapier? Uh, I think those squirrels over there were messing with it. I don't know. Ah! <laughs> yeah. Although it takes like six of them to lift it up. but you know. Your spell just bounced off that squirrel because he's already stolen your plus five ring of protection. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a very real theme going through of animals that would normally seem to be cute and cuddly and harmless. And it turns out... Uh, no. <laughs> okay, well, my number three will be talking about how Mavolg is set up. And it's very fey-oriented, and he has various, you know, the spelling I think is F-E-I instead of F-A-Y. But it's basically what you think of, the, the glamour-type casting magical creatures. But in Mavolg, the druids are a little different. They're more wicker man than tree hugger. Monks have psionics, which is a little weird, but, you know, it, it's certainly a variant on the class. I really liked, and maybe this is just the historian, but they take a realm like Mavolg, which, by the way, dropped a mile. So it's like sort of got, it, it's basically set off from the rest by these giant cliffs that you have to go down in order to get into the place. Oh, that is so appendix in. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And some of the buck I have drift homes. Or drift towns that basically are collections of little uh, huts and stuff on clouds that just float around at random directions. But, but one of the things I really liked was this realm, and I call it a realm because 
there's lots and lots of little states that make up it. Some are independent, some are allied, some are vassals. But it really upsets me, especially if you're going for Dark Age or you know, early Middle Ages, this idea of, well, you know, to have a kingdom, you need a kingdom the size of France or Germany or whatever. It's like, you know, the British Isle itself was split up into 12 different kingdoms at one time. Kingdoms didn't have to be that big. You can have a lot of various adventures in that short area. And he does that really well. One of my favorites is the the Yellow God, who's basically this sentient, 10-foot-tall, magical, golden uh, orangutan who has you know minions who worship him as a god and ogres who work for him and everything. And it's kind of cool. But this is just a little area of less than 1,000 people. It's bigger than just a random encounter. It's arguably its own state. But it's not Mordor 9.725, you know what I mean? You, you can have a localized threat that's still impressive, but isn't mm-hmm. hordes of non-orcs, because there aren't any orcs. Hobgoblins, hordes of hobgoblins coming to get you. Oh, and in case I didn't mention it clear enough earlier, there are no horses in this game. Everybody runs, rides llamas or pacas or reindeer or sorts of things. No horses. There are riding wasps that you can get yep. in the Davon book. It's like, wow. I don't, I, I don't want to get in a thing and, and diverge us, but I guess I'm going to anyway, so sorry in advance. But I really like the, 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 the intellect and study that went into this because the whole setting kind of smacks of a alternate parallel world's version of the colonization of the Americas. And Mike, you, you're the historian. you got to know that like the answer to the dumb question is like, why when we got over here weren't the Aztecs and the Mayans with just as many thousands of years of advanced civilization and writing and stuff, why weren't they at the same tech level as the Europeans? And the basic answer to that question is because North and South America didn't have any domesticated horses and cows, right? Yeah. Well, and, that's and one so, of many so here's, here's Dave Hill going... Have- yeah, this is the fix for that. This is what they have in this world. Right. And also, they didn't work steel. Everybody thinks, well, you know, the Spanish conquered the Aztecs because of gunpowder. It's like, well, not really. I mean, have you ever been in the tropics? It rains a lot. And arquebuses don't work well. It was really steel that and horses that really made the difference. So, yeah. And it's a nifty, it's a nifty play on it. I, I like it. In some ways, but being myself, I got to have some things to grouse about. But I'll save those for my last two. You need a little Spock. I know. Yeah, yeah. Liz, number two. (laughs) Number two. All right. Davon Supplement has a rumor table included (laughs) in the Arch County of Darrenscarn. I think I may be pronouncing that one correctly. (laughs) It's like they knew your character was coming there. I know. So, yeah, there's a rumor table when going over that particular segment of Davon. The best part about the table is that none of the rumors are shown as either true or false. You decide for your own campaign. So you've got like a table of 20 rumors. Who knows? Each individual DM can do whatever they want with them or, you know, chuck them all and make their own. It's like awesome. Okay. None of the rumors have Patrick Swayze in them, which is also which is awesome. I awesome. heard there was a rumor that Patrick Swayze was in them. <laughs> Maybe you should check no. the table. No. <laughs> if it's if if you roll a thirty on a D twenty, you can you can see that. So, folks, if you're attending North Texas RPG Con and you see in the schedule that Corbin is running Avramir, you know what to expect. 
all the Swayze Patrick, you can stand. That's and right, that Patrick you Swayze. God, you guys are just jealous of Swayze. <laughs> yeah, not really. Okay, number two, Corbett. Okay, I get that you don't like the Swayze. I'd say it's okay. I'm just, I'm just. Uh, I'll, I'll back it off. It's okay. That's okay. I won't. I won't probably not mention it. <laughs> <laughs> probably, maybe. He won't probably. Probably. <laughs> So, so I read the book about the gods, deities and demnities. Right? I thought that was uh, it was deities and indemnities. What? No, dem dem <laughs> diminities. diminities. I got oh, it. okay. Diminities. Diminities. I thought it was the the combination deity legal book for. Well, I think it was this phrasing because of the way that the, he, he kind of leans on the gods more like the uh, well, more like the Greek gods. It felt like to me. It's a lower tier of power for a traditional D and D setting group of gods. Yeah, kind of like titans. Yeah. Or something. They're they're so, attainable. They're not big floaty in the sky dimi, guys. Demi dimini, dimi divinities, and so but it's divinities. There there were three three that jumped out at me as just like oh this is awesome. But there were some there were some really good heroes in there. <laughs> but I gotta admit when you have divine powers you really cut loose. And uh, I I thought of Liz when I saw the the weaving woman. She actually weaves little golems to go out and fight for her. I thought that was kind of cute. Uh, then they have a snail god, <laughs> spiral shell, god of dreams and mollusks, which is, of course, going hand in hand, really. But the one that really caught me, the squirrel god. <laughs> <laughs> the god of lost knowledge and collecting. Oh, and squirrels. God of squirrels. He's probably behind those Tanglewood squirrels that steal magic Almost items. certainly. Uh, it totally swings back to the Swayze of this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When he was in Tu Wong Fu, and he was totally Swayzeing it up. In what? Tu Wong Fu. Thanks for everything, Julie Newmar. The one where Patrick Swayze dressed up as a woman. Never heard of it. That's yeah. a wonderful movie. Never heard of it. It was a totally great movie. I wanted to see that movie, but never did get to. But yeah, Squirrel Gods. That's crazy. And that explains more because, like, all the books, you know, I'll get into that later. Go. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just picturing poor David Hill at home listening to this episode, going, "Well, I'm glad they liked it, but what does any of this have to do with Patrick Swayze?" <laughs> Everything. E- either that, or he's having his mind blown, going, "How did they know?" <laughs> they saw right through the Swayze. Why do I sense a, the next uh, supplement being a Swayze supplement to ever? <laughs> would be Ooh, the best supplement. Swayze mentals in it. Yeah. <laughs> Swayze versus Swayze combat. I can hear the <laughs> listeners tuning out. <laughs> click, click, uh, click, click. Well, I do like the idea of the Diminities. Just the overall names of them. It's very, oh gosh, I don't want to say literary, but it just brings to mind reading a lot of the books I grew up with. You know, even in his, he's got his own appendix in, in the back of the Davon book. And some of the books that he mentions in there, it's like, yes, I read that. I read that. I can see. It's like, but the divinity names like, you know, Jenny Pumpkin Seed, Patchwork Man. And, so, and some nods to, like Fiddler's Green, which is, he, yeah. didn't, he didn't create that, but it's nice to see. And, you know, it just brings me back to the books that I read as a kid. The Lloyd Alexander's books and it's just, ah, <laughs> I just get this feeling as I'm reading through it, and it is a different feeling than what I get just reading a standard 
booklet supplement booklet for a D type game like that feeling you get when you see swayze hit the screen really powerful so jim number two <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh that's nothing i love better than a joke on the 51st time it's told <laughs> um, patrick swayze the gift that keeps on giving uh my number two is uh everything centered around the winter bind compact uh in the history of this world the humans showed up with their arcanoflow energy the land was uh deified by these elemental forces and the two got into conflict and as liz had talked about in one of her earlier ones it looked bad for our guys because the humans could have been wiped out but at some point for reasons unknown the elemental divinities intervened and saved humanity against i guess it was the winter the the, the can't remember if he has a special name but it's the divinity winter was the one that was hell-bent on okay these primates have got to go and he's going to kill them. And the, the rest of them ganged up, intervened, and they created the Winterbind Compact, which is the sort of rules for what's allowed and what's not allowed between the human and the demi-human races. That was a long-winded way to get to, if you're a magic user, human magic user in this world, using the Arcana Flow, it's no longer legal for you to enslave elementals or use them in uh, creating magical constructs like uh, summoning an aerial servant or uh, building an iron golem. That's no longer kosher, and uh, he even gets into it as, you know, you might get away with a little bit of that first through third level, but by fourth level, somebody's going to notice and come looking for you. Okay. I just, how that all winds itself in together with the setting is just wonderful. And, and, and to what Liz was saying, the whole setting is just wonderful. That's a good adjective for the setting. Okay, what what's worse, enslaving an elemental or creating undead? Um, you can, There's all kinds of ways in the setting to create undead. Even magic users can do it. There's a spell. There's a magic user spell. Well, yeah, but I'm speaking more as far as a naughty act. Well, the thing about the enslaving the elemental, depending on how powerful you are doing it, you know, if you're doing it on such a large scale, it could conceivably mean the sundering of the compact and just putting humanity at war with everybody else Which is all kind of why it's, it's feeling like that is actually worse than dabbling in necromancy. And there's a little Game of Thrones that mixed in, too, because these divinities uh, literally control the coming and going of the seasons, individually and together as a group. Plus, the just the run-of-the-mill land is is crawling with elementals, uh, the way uh, David describes it. You know, that fog bank down by the river might be a fog bank, or it might be a fog elemental. So you don't want to screw around. It would also reduce the uh, efficacy, I would think, of uh, weather control magic there are some workarounds like if you're if you absolutely have to have a flesh golem there's an arcane path for doing that but now you're bumping up against the the winter bind compact okay well my number two is this gonna sound like i'm i'm complaining and i suppose to a degree i am but it not as much as it sounds like somehow i feel like this game or setting i keep saying game because i feel like in a way this feels like tech humor. Did it use the same engine as D&D? Well, yeah, technically. But it's really its own thing. I think that's really well observed. And I think this is really, if he had just put this out as a D20 game, you know, based on D&D rules, but basically provided the rules in the Evermere book and then have everything else go, I think it would work really well. Because as much as I love some of the magic items and monsters in here, I could see some D&D purists having a cow. Granted, most D&D purists I've met have a cow about something, even Patrick Swayze. But 
Uh, no, go ahead. Yeah, no, it's true. <laughs> go on Dragon's Foot. It's there. Why Patrick Say- Swayze is not canonical AD&D. It's there. Look. Oh, man. You're going to use Swayze against me? <laughs> Mike's like, hang on. Hang on a second. <laughs> oh, look. It's there. Right, right there. I'll put it in the show notes. Anyway. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, there are some some things in the game that I think would actually work better if it was a little further away from the D&D paradigm. And that may just be because I felt like Paladins got a little watered down with the armagers. Though oh, I, I, I feel like I disagree more. Although I do think the armagers are probably closer to beefy cavaliers than actual true paladins. But oh, but that's I really liked the armagers. I, I think he fixed paladins. <laughs> Everything that was wrong with paladins, I think he fixed it with the armagers. Oh, you're all wrong. So <laughs> and besides that, uh <laughs> Also, Mavolg felt a little odd. I mean, it's it, it was like half Celtic, half Asian. It didn't feel like just a cookie cutter of either. It was a really good mesh of it. But again, it's something that I think could make people who don't want their European peanut butter in their, and their Asian chocolate together. That is something that I think that could be, if people are looking at this, especially being in digest form as just, oh, it's a new setting for D&D. Well, yes. And no, be aware before you jump into this that, you know, and again, you know, there's nothing in there. It's not so you must use everything in these books. Of course not. Um, and there's even if you're just going to play a vanilla D&D game, there's plenty to mine from here. But that that's, it's almost intentionally written in modular chunks that you could use and not use. Pieces. Yeah. Yeah. And this may be heresy, but I, I think it would have been easier to read if it had not each book not been broken up into the Men and Magic, Monster and Treasure, Underground and Wilderness Adventure sections. I know that's canonical, but it, it, it felt felt a little weird to me. Well, it I agreed with you about an hour ago. <laughs> but the more I heard <laughs> now, yeah. you're, now you're just wrong. <laughs> yeah, that was before you 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 brought up Patrick Swayze, and of course, after that, everything, all your decisions are now suspect. I didn't get a chance to look at the other books, and now that I'm hearing from the other books and the interconnection, like I can see why he would separate them so that they can kind of glow on their own Bob. And, and not be kind of washed away with. And here's a bucket of spells, because there were spells in the D. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, no, I I, I kind of get both sides because I you know. Being a game designer, I, I read through and I go, why isn't this, you know, a hardback 300 page book on Kickstarter right now? Yeah. You know, which is counter to the entire conceit of the production of it. And it couldn't right? be 88 pages. That's true. Well, I suppose it could if you did like Microfish or something. Well, I don't want to be a production guy, but I'll bet you it's some variation of uh, the number four pages. Well, yeah, because, yeah, digest. But they didn't all have no, to no, be exactly printing, printing. 88. But anyway. <laughs> Yeah, I, I see your point. I, I, I see where you're coming from. But Liz? It's not. So I guess, Liz, you're number one. <laughs> well, I thought Jim okay, might have well. had some more to say, so I was kind of leaving some empty there. Oh, no, I feel bad now. I feel like we just all argued you in a corner. <laughs> <laughs> Get him! No, not at all. Not at all. You're all Nobody wrong. puts Mike in a corner, all right? <laughs> I don't have a problem whatsoever. Uh, you're all wrong, and that's cool. You know? So, Liz, <laughs> one. <laughs> My number one. Armagers. <laughs> <laughs> Rip off. 
Rock on. Here we go. And why they are great. (laughs) (laughs) Well, one thing I do want to say is, again, the Davon supplement goes into more detail about the armagers than what you get in Supplement Zero. Maybe, I mean, just maybe, if you, you know, get to read that one, it might change your mind a little bit about the armager class yourself, Mike. One might say an armager is a paladin who got down off his high horse because horses aren't in this game. (laughs) (laughs) But he's on a battle reindeer. Uh, Well, starting off reading in Supplement Zero, I felt that the armager was pretty much a combination of some of the best traits from the paladin and the cavalier mashed together, allowing more freedom of expression depending on the court that you have your character serve. And you've got the eight different courts, and some of them are neutral, some are law, some are chaos. And if you're wanting to play a traditional type of paladin, you could have your armager be from the court of the griffin. Their charisma-based attack is against undead, you know, so they turn undead. Or seduce them. You know, they... Because charisma. Eh? Eh? See it? Eh? No. Yeah, no. 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 (laughs) No, uh, uh. <laughs> but you've got the various type of courts, and depending on what type of armager you want to have, you can have them be more like a paladin or more like a cavalier. It gives you an opportunity to make it more your own rather than, oh, you're a paladin. All paladins are alike. You could be an armager. And there could be someone else who is also playing an armager, but both of your characters could be wildly different from one another. You know, their goals, their appearance, what's important to them, all those things. So it's really cool. They go into a lot of detail as to the various courts, what an armager who hails from that court family will tend to look like, because, you know, for the most part, you are born into being an armagerial court. So it's almost like families, you know, and in that case, it's very much like a cavalier. You're from a noble family of some sort. That's the prevailing thing. (laughs) The thing, yes. Okay. Anything else, or do you want to keep going with that? Uh, No, I don't want to go on and on and on about it, but... Oh, she wants to. (laughs) (laughs) She wants to give you time for the Swayze. We don't have that much time in the episode, (laughs) but I'm just saying... (laughs) The armager is awesome. You can do a lot with it. You can customize it to whatever kind of character concept you've got in your head. And it's cool. Ben Corbett, number one. You're number one. I knew it would have to happen eventually. Yeah. <laughs> Where does Swayze uh, fit I... in this time? No, no. I was going to talk about the art. I, I really, really <laughs> enjoyed the art. Were there any pictures art. of Patrick Swayze in there? I didn't notice. I don't know what your fixation with Patrick Swayze is. I yes, <laughs> you do. The you art do. is wonderful, especially the no, ink washes. You're right. It, it, mm-hmm. In an insulting way, <laughs> it, it feels like drawings I did when I was a kid, but good versions of them. Like so, it's you what, know, you, you, what you had in your head as a kid and wanted on the paper. Yeah, yeah. Just it has that feel. Like yeah, that's what I would have drawn. Which I. I don't know if that's insulting in the sense that I'm, I'm giving him a, a childlike innocence or it, it's really, I think it's just the art flows with the uh, the feel of the game. And 
You know, it's a lot like when Patrick Swayze was talking to uh, Keanu Reeves in Point Break. (laughs) And he says, you feel the wave and know what it's doing and accept its energy. And I think the artist took that in. I I can't believe you're saying that, Corbett, and instead of me or Liz, because you're you're entirely correct. I mean, there's a because like I. Uh, Liz and I were both dancing around. It's just kind of a wonderful feeling setting. It's very charming. The art is charming. I mean, it just seems to organically fit all of the text that goes with it. To an extent, you know, that's one of the the strengths of having David is the writer and the artist, and he knows what he wants, and he can put it exactly when and where it should be in, you know, the best possible sense. I have a soft spot for polymaths. Okay, I can write and I can do art and I can lay it out. You can have the best artist in the world and ask them to do stuff for your work. No matter what, there's going to be, you know, just the tiniest bit of a disconnect, you know, because what they're thinking as they're doing what you've asked them to is not ever going to be exactly what you are thinking in your head if you're able to do it yourself. I'm not sure anyone would have been able to get the same feel with the art, you know, if they had done it for this booklet and not David. Well, he's kind of, I mean, he explains his inspirations in, uh, I think the first forward, how his initial exposure to the whole genre was opening up the Hobbit and he got to the back and saw the maps and it blew his mind as a kid. And this Mm -hmm. is very like that. I mean, uh, how do I want to say this? I mean, Watsy is not going to hire David A. Hill to do art in the player's handbook, you know, but you go through the book and you're like, Oh, this is exactly what you know, it's like finding a Tolkien sketch midway through a Lord of the Rings book. This is exactly what he's seeing in his head, mm-hmm. which is very charming. Yeah. And I mean, quite honestly, as technically good as a lot of the fifth edition art is in Watsy's books and supplements, in the end, it's it kind of leaves you feeling a little cold. I mean, it's technically very well done, but a lot of times I don't get, you know, a feeling of connection with the art. So I don't know how much sense that makes. But... It makes perfect sense. And it's such a good thing to talk about because, like, I I let off with, okay, here's a gazetteer done right, you know, implying that all the uh, Dungeons & Dragons gazetteers were crap. Well, A, they weren't crap. They're just not to my personal taste. And B, that's Skip Williams and all those guys writing under an editorial direction for a corporation. This is what you get in the OSR. This is David A. Hill out on Mm -hmm. his own delivering his vision in words and art in its purest form. I feel like I got preachy, but I I dug it. That's all I'm saying. Was that your number one or did you have something else? Oh, oh, that's that's Mike's code for hurry this up. The podcast has gone too long. <laughs> My number one is the uh, cosmology of the whole thing. I mean, I, I am of age where I remember the first time I cracked open the player's handbook and saw uh, Dave Tramp's illustration of Gary's cosmology. Okay, here's the prime material plane. Here are the elemental planes. Here are the all the... Uh, nirvanas and uh valhallas and it just blew my little teenage mind that this guy had worked it all the way through to you know the multiverse that you could possibly play in and david a hill's not only done that in avenir in the eldritch book including illustrations he's done it in an entirely uh to me anyway original way that i just dug you know a heliocentric solar system and a uh a drawing of the deployment of the various elemental planes and higher and lower planes that doesn't look anything like what we're used to from uh, AD&D. Or just about any D&D. And, you know, not just the drawings and the deployment, but how it hooks into all the other things we've talked about. Okay. Well, after all these grand 
things, I feel kind of lame ending up my number one on tree graves. In Marvolg, they, like I said, it's kind of Celtic and kind of Asian, but a bit that they kind of got from Rome was the idea of cremating the dead, creating, instead of death masks, they create urns shaped like the, the person. There were actually systems there to, if you want your loved one to stay around, you would put a seed in the ashes and set it out for a tree to grow. And the tree would grow with the spirit connected to it, sort of like a dryad, only it would be your your ancestor's spirit, and which is a way of working in the whole ancestor worship issue, too. That is so cool. So I thought, yeah, I mean, I heard that. And it's like you're actually working three or four different beliefs slash myths into one thing. Well done, sir. So I thought it was really cool. Unfortunately, it's one of those, I think it's limited to Malvogue, so it would have just been in the Malvogue book I, was, I, I read. So... That's ours. And now, let's talk about saves. What makes a save, and what is going to take half? What makes the save, and what doesn't make the save? And, keeping our order, we'll start with Liz. Alrighty. What makes the save? Um... This is hearkening back to what we were talking about at the very beginning of this episode. Just the masterful world building throughout the entirety of these booklets. Like we said, Avermeer is not just another Tolkien-esque world ripoff using somebody's house rules. It is in every sense its own unique animal. It is well thought through. It is executed into a harmonious whole. It is by turns serious chilling, mysterious, and imbued with a wry sense of humor that invites you in and it makes you want to stay a while. I just think this is totally made of awesome. <laughs> and I have been wanting to cover this for so long. I'm so glad we're doing it. <laughs> I've written, you know, my Aden campaign for AD&D. And other than certain major sections, I wasn't that worried about the overall history and, and legend of of the world. He is. Hill has managed to work it all and make it both fantasy and consistent, which has been really cool. In a way that no human being can just sit down and create in a single session. This is this is the result of him running a campaign for decades. Yeah. I mean, there were even sections in the Malvogue book anyway that had uh, various comments and uh, stories of from his campaign world, like even just little witticisms. Yeah. Which I yeah, thought was same really in the cool. Davon book. There's even one in the very back of the Davon book, which I think you will like, Mike, which has a, a couple of adventurers conversing and talking about how much they hate gnomes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, it, it's certainly a lot better than the your 13 year old best friend's character's dead corpse is still in the room with the giant spider, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> All right, that makes a save. What doesn't make the save? Oh, man. I had a hard time with this one because there was very little that I read that I didn't like at, or that didn't capture my imagination in some way and make me want to know even more. But I guess if I had to find some kind of flaw in the work, it is that it is so rich that I can't keep it all straight. I think I would have to carefully read over everything at least a second time, probably a third and a fourth and take notes for myself before I would feel ready to start running games 
in the world of Avramir. And I would probably start small and give myself just a very small portion of the whole to become familiar with rather than leap into a grand adventure spanning the world and doing all this stuff. And, you know, honestly, I think that's more true to the genre anyway. My favorite stories all start out with an ordinary person in some backwater finding themselves thrust into adventure and trying to figure it all out. So, I mean, maybe that's not so bad, but yeah, I had to really reach to come up with that one. <laughs> okay. Corbett? Well, okay, my, my makes doesn't... a save Patrick Swayze. Now, what does it make Oh, Patrick no, that's Swayze. Mine. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually the same thing you'd commented on earlier. Doesn't make the save was that the the book felt like it didn't need to be. It, it should have been like for for the OSR or whatever you feel like using because this world is complete. It's fine with the OSR. It doesn't hurt my feelings that it's connected to the OSR. But yeah, I think it could probably benefit from being actually used in a lot of different systems for different reasons, because there's so uh, so many points you can go to in the world that make it feel, um, well, like Liz was saying, it's, you know, it's happy, it's sad, it's good, it's bad. It's What does make the save is it's a great world. It's rich, it's strong, it's um, bowling you over. I felt like um, I understood, whenever I would read about a section or part, I felt like I understood it and I would move on. And I do feel like Liz is probably right in the sense that there's so much. Yeah, you, you'd kind of get overwhelmed. I think the big question would be, you know, would Patrick Swayze play this game? I no. think in a world where the... You know why he wouldn't? Because he's dead. Not without some necromancy and a Ouija board. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which as long as you're not enslaving a an elemental you know no no i'm just saying in the, in the in the colorado mountains somewhere there's a pack of wolverines yeah they're playing it all right yeah they're playing it flutter wolverines <laughs> for their squirrel god <laughs> where they're the best there is at what they do i now can't wait for north texas con because the second i see you and every time for the rest of the con i'm just gonna <laughs> i'm just gonna look at you and go what's up point break <laughs> <laughs> Let's have a Patrick Swayze Christmas this year. Okay, so that's your makes and doesn't make? Makes, or doesn't you... make and make. Okay, Jim? I did it reversed from Liz. She had to go the, the Jim? other one. Uh, what makes the save is just this entire product is, in my opinion, must read D&D. You've, 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 if you're listening to this and you've been unaware of it before now, go to Drive Through RPG. Spend six ninety nine. You can't even get through Taco Bell for six ninety nine anymore, and and you can go to Drive Through RPG A V R E M I E R, and you'll find them all. It's must read reading. I mean, if only for the parts you want to nick for your own campaign and uh, the monsters. It, 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 that's six ninety nine, easy right there. What uh, doesn't make the save? I've got one. Uh, what doesn't make the save is the way uh, David has marketed this book to date. You know, I'm I'm fortunate in that I uh, know him and uh, have a con I see him at. I got the books that way. But I, Dave needs to figure out a better way to market this because it should have a bigger footprint in the OSR than it does. So get get on get on the stick, Dave, and figure out how to sell more of these because it should be out there, man. <laughs> okay. Alrighty, my makes the save. Again, I guess kind of like everyone's saying, imaginative. It's a simple thing to say. And I'm going to just distract away from the the geography and cosmology and culture for my makes the saves and more just the nifty ideas for your own home game in it. 
whether it's monsters, whether it's magic items, whether it's bad guys acting in different ways, whether it's the mini adventures he sticks in the books. At least he did in Avermeer and Marvel. I don't know about the others. Great stuff. Great, great, great stuff. He has mechanics in when he thinks it's useful. When he doesn't, he doesn't. He just either says, look at the world's first RPG or just leaves it to the DM to handle on their own. Great, great stuff. I can guarantee you I will be stealing not only stuff from this for my fantasy games, but for Victorious, too. So he has a copyright action against you, then? More or less. (laughs) I won't publish it. I'll use it in my home game. But, yeah, yeah, it is. See, y'all keep complaining about the giant spiders, so now now you're going to get other stuff. You're going to get Crypt Dragons now. I want a Greedle. No. I want a Greeble. No. Greebles were cool. (laughs) They were cool. They are dragon mice. They are adorable. I want one. I'm surprised you didn't mention them. I was tempted. We only have five. I I know. That is true. I mean, it was on my list as something possible to talk about, but I'm getting it in now, so it's kind of Well, this is why everybody should go buy this on DriveThruRPG, because there was too much for us to talk about in an hour and a half. We didn't even skim the surface. Okay. My doesn't make the save. And this is totally me. This is Mike Stewart. This is not, you know, necessarily other people will find it a positive. In fact, most people may find it a positive. But I just, I tend to like my campaign world's lower fantasy than Avermeer. Avermeer is middling to high, I think. That's fair. And that's great if that's what you want to play. That's awesome. Me personally, not so much. But for that setting, it works great. But your mileage may vary, so be aware. Although, from all the talk of Flutterpotamuses, Greedles, Crypt Dragons, and Patrick Swayze, you would always ex- already expect this to be a very high magic campaign. But, you know, just in case you hadn't got it through your head, that's my doesn't make the same. All right. Well, this has been Avramir by David A. Hill and Moth Shade Concepts. We will have links in the show notes to the uh, Drive Through RPG page. Does he have a Mythmere Concepts page, do y'all know? Or Mothshade Concepts page? Sorry, Mythmere. <laughs> Mothshade. Uh, he does have a Facebook page for Mothshade Concepts. Okay, and we'll we have a link on that, that too. Yeah, we'll, we'll link that as well. That was an easy slip to make because David right. A. Hill and Matt Finch think a lot alike after reading this book. Well, the Sinister Shrooms, but well, we'll go there. <laughs> that's a whole different thing. All right. Well, thanks for coming on again, Jim. Hope we'll have you on soon for a slightly less Patrick Swayze episode. Camp- oh, Champions, God. right? <laughs> slightly slightly yeah champions because what possible connection could patrick swayze have in a superhero game right oh, <laughs> corbett has weeks now to work that out <laughs> that's right yeah thanks a lot mike <laughs> all right well thanks again and say good night everybody good night everybody see you everybody free arc everybody <laughs> and we are Podcast is a production of the Mud Puppy Games Network and the Gagman Podcast. The Save for Half theme music is provided by the band Mississippi Bones. You can find them at mississippibones.bandcamp.com. All player characters mentioned in this podcast are fictional, and any resemblance to PCs living or dead is purely coincidental. No NPCs were armed in the making of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Save for Half. Like a 68 and
Which is Goblin for Here Comes Patrick Swayze, run! <laughs> or Here Comes Patrick Swayze, get him! Uh.